I'm with Kevin McElroy, Cross Gully Violins, and Freeport, Maine, the home of L.L. Bean. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we always have to repeat that. <laughs> yeah. How you doing, Kevin? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining us. So what we're going to talk about today is for the novice and also for the collector, um, all about violins. And what started you on your track of uh, interest and passion for anti-violins? Well, um, I've been playing the violin pretty much all of my life. And um, my uh, grandfather actually was a musician. And um, he was in the habit of bringing instruments home with him that he'd collected uh, from other musicians or other friends and uh, antique shops and hawk shops. And uh, I, so I saw the instruments that he brought into the house and sometimes they needed a little bit of fixing and he would uh, fix them up in various ways. He was not a trained luthier, but he did play the violin. And uh, I kind of caught the bug way back then from him. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was kind of fascinating. Uh, subject when you're a little kid to sort of watch that sort of process and I got sucked in. Now did he, how did it uh, progress into what you're doing today? Uh, well I just, I continued to play and I always uh, looked out for musical instruments and various stages of disrepair that I could bring in and, um, and learn about and repair and um, I um, spent some time in violin shops, uh, working for other luthiers, and um, studied at uh, the University of New Hampshire in their summer music, summer music program, luthiers program, and uh, with uh, Mr. Hans Nabel, uh, who was my teacher from Mittenwald, and uh, I actually followed him out to North Adams State College and studied with him out there as well, and started going to auctions, which was a, a great place to... Uh, learn about instruments. I traveled to London to uh, the Sotheby's and Bonhams and Christie's and the auctions in London to mm. see other types of instruments. So I've wow. basically been looking at thousands and thousands of violins. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell a quick story. When I was 18 years old, I bought a house full of stuff and then it was a violin. I didn't really pay attention to it. And so as I was taking everything out of the truck and looking everything over, I looked inside and I saw a Stradivarius label and it was actually written in ink or part of it was. So I remember trying to figure out who to call, called someone in Boston and said, I have a Stradivarius violin. And the guy was very kind to me. And he said, I get this call about 50 times a year. And so um, that's when I realized that, and I've seen many, many, many with the Stradivarius labels on them inside. And who did those, and why did they say Stradivarius? Everyone did them. I Everyone. mean, every, uh, every nation had commercial violin shops, especially before World War II, that produced um, hundreds and hundreds of copies of uh, Stradivarius and Guarneris and uh, Amatis, and they were just fictitious labels, and the instruments mm -hmm. were exported to Montgomery Wards and... Sears, Roebuck, and Kits, yeah, right? and uh, yeah, yeah, by the hundreds and hundreds and thousands, and so that's why um, the man in Boston got so many phone calls, and we continue to get phone calls like that all the time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm sure there's some people that don't believe you as well. I don't <laughs> you know. Tell them that a lot of times. I just have been an appraiser for a long time and have had to break the bad news to somebody. I just did yesterday, actually. 
<laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 difficult to tell people because uh, you know there's uh, you know they they go for a whole generation holding this piece of art um, with the Stradivari label in, in it, and yeah. they think that they're going to cash it in, and it's yeah, really right. difficult to tell them the bad news. It's it's sad in a lot of cases, but yeah. Now, one of the things that comes to mind right away is what makes a violin sound absolutely beautiful compared to a commercial violin usually the player um yeah <laughs> but um also um um a real violin um is graduated um in other words the thicknesses of the violin and the archings of the violin the way it's carved the way the neck is set the projection of the strings in relation to the bridge all these things add up to something that sounds great and if you have really precise numbers and um, you're, um, you have a, a real visual sense of what a, what a really great violin is supposed to look like and sound like, eventually you're going to be able to make one. Wow. Now, I remember watching The Red Violin, which I really liked that movie a lot, and recommend any listener to watch it. Um, and they were showing scientific instruments. This, this is an old movie, like 20 years mm-hmm. old or so. Yeah. Scientific instruments and measuring um like the perfect violin type of thing is that is that really done? Well, yeah, yeah. There, there are lots of people who spend a lot of time studying acoustics and um, studying what makes uh, you know what made early Strads and Del Jesus sound so good, and taking measurements and trying to find out what the samples of the varnish were based on and what the ground materials were made of. Um, there, a lot of that's very, very helpful, but I think a lot of it. More has to do with uh, someone's intuitive sense about how to how to make a good sounding musical instrument. Now I know there's the baroque neck, the shorter neck, and then the longer neck. Mm-hmm. What is the difference in sound between those two? Well, the uh, the baroque's uh, neck is set really close to the body, and the string length is shorter. Mm-hmm. So um, they're going to be a lot more quiet, and you can't you can't string a, a baroque instrument up with uh, heavy gauge strings. But it's too much strain on the neck, so. Mm-hmm. You can see that you know just a modern instrument would just have more strength and be able to project more power. Now, when one of the things you, you just mentioned varnish, one of the things I always question is: does it have anything to do with the type of wood used, or is that? Oh yeah, I think that, yeah, I think the wood makes a difference too, in in, in the overall sound and what you're going to end up with. Um, you know, you sell, find some instruments that are really beautifully figured and some instruments that are that are really plain. Now, a lot of it has to do with, it's just a combination of everything. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with the wood and the way it's carved and the arching and the neck set. All those things combine to, mm-hmm. to make a big difference in terms of what the overall sound is like. Now, we think of, or I should say, I think of really nice violins as um, 18th century, possibly even early 18th century, maybe late 17th century Italian. Do they go back further than that in time? Yeah, yeah. Violins, violins go back in the 15th, 14th, and 15th century, but the modern violin really, late, the, the, the Amadi family is probably the most important family of uh, creating in, in, in creating the modern violin, uh, and they were late, six, late 1600s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Strat is the most famous maker, and he was the turn of the century. Then there were so many great copyists who took off from Antonio Stradivarius who went into the 18th and early 19th century making violins. 
What would you say is the most valuable violin? Is it a Stradivarius? Um, well, um, recently the Lady Blunt Antonio Stradivarius sold for, I think the number was $14 million. But <laughs> I think a lot of that had to do with uh, the fact that the, a lot of the money was being um, raised for tsunami relief in Japan. The violin was uh, donated back to the auction house uh, in an effort to raise uh, money. So uh, that's so a, little a little bit of a skewed number. A little bit of a skewed number, mm-hmm. I'd say. Um, now, are there the violins considered out there more sought after than Stradivarius? No, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Stradivarius is probably the most important mm-hmm. Italian maker ever. Now, let's just say a little bit outside of violins, um, getting into cellos or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is there still like the really big sought after makers? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, you know, if you can find a Stradivarius cello, you're doing really well. There are lots of other uh, um, Italian makers who are who are sought after. The um, if you could find a Grancino or a Guadagnini cello, you know, mm-hmm. the, a lot of the professional musicians are looking for instruments like that. Most of them are accounted for, and most of them are owned by players already. It would be almost like finding a Van Gogh. I mean, it can happen, mm-hmm. but most of them are accounted for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, have you made a violin yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more of an amateur maker. I do mm-hmm. restoration work primarily. You do a lot of restoration yeah, work, and work, that's your focus, right? Well, yeah, that's my focus, antique instruments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I really like. But while we're just saying this, we might as well plug you. Do you have a website? Oh, yeah, Frost Scully Violins. Um, uh-huh. And someone can ship to you from anywhere in the country, basically. Yeah. yeah. You do repair work. Yeah. Now, this piece, when we first met, I was showing you a violin, and... It was, I could tell right away, it was pretty badly damaged. It gets very costly when it's a very good instrument and it has some major damage. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that's really difficult to explain to people is just how time-consuming restoration work is on an instrument. If you have a mm-hmm. valuable musical instrument, even if you say, for example, it's going to cost you three or $4,000 to do the work, the other bit of it is is probably going to take two, maybe three years to finish the work. Oh my goodness! So, is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, <laughs> that's another thing to consider when you if you're thinking about getting involved in restoring an old antique yeah. instrument. I usually recommend against it if someone doesn't have an instrument and wants to play right away. They're much better off to buy a new instrument. Now I've seen a number of violins that have the splicing that were baroque and then Victorianized or changed, you know, a hundred years ago, whatever to. Mm-hmm. Um, more of a modern type. Um, does that take away from the value when that's done? Um, well, I mean, um, a lot. Most most of the Stradivarius violins were originally had Baroque or shorter string lengths, and they've all had what's called you're, you, when you say splicing, you're talking about a neck graft. The neck. So graft, the head is yeah, the head it. is grafted onto a new the piece of neck stock there. Yeah. to give you a longer string length. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, uh, in terms of playability, it's really improved them uh, in terms of modern sound yeah in terms of collectability if you found something with a, a, a baroque neck that was originally baroque it um it still does have an antique value as much probably as if it had been altered so it doesn't really affect the value oh, okay now i know the purfling which is like the inlay mm-hmm. um, there's really different levels of how well that's done oh yeah and Basically, that's like the inlay around the very edge mm-hmm. of the violin. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the anatomy of the violin? We just talked about the scroll, mm-hmm. which is where the pegs are for the strings. Yeah. 
the neck. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the purfling and the, the idea of the purfling channel and the purfling is, um, especially in the top of islands, there, it's made of really tight grain, usually parallel spruce, which is f- pretty fragile. And if you bump the edge of it, the purfling is designed to prevent it from cracking the the length of the instrument, that oh, really? the crack will go from the edge to the purfling channel. Oh, so this had a, a use to it, it not, had just, a, not just a design. Correct, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And then what what is the back? The back is usually spliced in the middle, right? I mean, you often, see Often you'll find two-piece quarter-sawn backs. Um, you'll also find slab-cut and quarter-sawn-cut backs, one piece of maple, the... Um, on Italian instruments, the ribs are generally uh, one piece in the lower bout and individual pieces in the C bout and two pieces in the upper bout. Mm-hmm. So, um, and the keyholes, what are they called? F holes. F holes. Yeah, the F holes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're and they're very distinctive. Everybody has a different way of cutting them and uh, locating them a little bit differently. And so that's one of the, those are one of the almost like the uh, hallmarks for looking. To, to help to identify a maker is by the look of the F-hole mm-hmm. and the location of the F-hole mm-hmm. combined with, you know, the varnish and the purfling and the type of wood used for the purfling. And, um, you know, all these things are key to try to figure out who, who made something. Oh, wow. So there's yeah. a lot of history detective work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that must be fun. Yeah, that is fun. It's good fun. I know from my grandfather played the violin and... His attic was full of junky violins. Most violins is kind of like books, like one out of a thousand is good. That's a pretty good number, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty good number, yeah. One out of a, one out of a thousand. Because yeah. I, I go to a lot of auctions and see a lot of violins sell for fifty dollars, yeah, yeah. twenty five dollars, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But also, I've had an auction where I did very well on a violin, mm-hmm. and I cannot remember the maker or anything like that. But I remember the bow went for just as much as the violin. Can you talk a little bit about why bows are so sought after? Um, yeah, well, I you know for an, antique value, just as much as violins. Um, uh, you know, bows bows were made. Uh, you know, in the 1700s, modern bows that are usable to players probably start around 1840, 1850 with the Picot workshop in France, and then all the way up into to modern bows. Um, they all have antique values and based on condition and uh, weight and balance and playability, it mm. affects the, the overall uh, value of the bow. So mm. it's, it's another thing you have to, it's really difficult to figure out who makes bows. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, um, in most cases, just look at a bow and know right away who made it. It takes wow. a lot of investigating, like um, parts and pieces have to all go together. Uh-huh. And so all those parts and pieces have little um, indicators. Mm-hmm. So. Getting back to the construction and making a violin, is it steam that bends those, the bends, the, what do you call the side pieces? The ribs. Um, yeah, you, used the, you use a little bit of water, but uh, it, it, they're bent on it with a bending iron. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of water on a cloth usually um, puts a little bit of steam into the wood. And um, is this the way it's been done forever? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then it's glued? And then it's glued, it's, uh, glued, it's glued around a form, an interior mm-hmm. form usually if, if you're making Italian-style instruments. Mm-hmm. Is there a maker today that's considered way above the rest? Um, you know, I don't, you know, I've seen a lot of modern violin makers 
uh, and I've seen a lot of their work, and I would not consider any one of them way above the rest. Uh, I mean, they're all they're all good. There are so many great modern makers. It, the value of their instruments is affected by who they manage to sell their instruments to. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that has a that has a really great effect on uh, you know if you. So you almost want to. To give your piece away to a real, someone really important, right? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. There's there's something to be said for that. Yeah. 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 So yeah, there's a, a insurance for future. Yeah. Uh, right. Sales. As far as someone that really enjoys the violin playing, and they decided they wanted to collect, what advice would you give that person if they to find pieces? Well, I mean, uh, I would say to work with the violin shop. Um, to work with a dealer like myself because I've, I have probably uh, close to hundred thousand dollars worth of books and mm-hmm. um, um, years of experience, and I can find good quality instruments. It's I've been doing this for a long time now. Are you to, willing to share your knowledge with um, people that are interested in collecting? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, um, um. That's part of what I do as as a, a dealer and someone who sells musical instruments is uh, mm-hmm. people come to me and they're looking for a musical instrument that will work for them as a player. Mm-hmm. And they share with me what it is that they're looking for, um, what kind of a maker. And I try to find them an instrument. And in, in the process, they learn about that maker, about that school, about the wood, about the nice. varnish. So yeah. it's it's you learn as you go. Yeah. Speaking of varnish, what type of role does varnish play in a piece? Um, well, it's, uh, it's very important, not only to look in the protection of the wood, but to the ability of the instrument to project sound. Um, I, I find that uh, in a, lot of, a lot of modern instruments, the varnish is a little bit, a little bit too hard and not elastic enough. It doesn't move around enough, so the, uh, the, um, the sound is a little harsh. Hmm. But if uh, the, the instrument can move around a little bit more with more elastic varnish, it projects and is warmer sounding. So isn't that something? How something as subtle as that makes a difference? No, oh, it does. Yeah, yeah, it's really big. And do people grind their own varnishes? Um, you know, I think a lot of people now are buying varnishes that are produced by um, people uh, around the country, around the world, who are making. Um, old world type varnishes. Um, mm-hmm. There are people who still make their own varnish, yes. Yeah. But there are some people who are making great varnish. Um, yeah. I think of, in- when you say elasticy, I think of spar varnish. That's like on boats and things like that. It's right. very elasticy. Yeah. But yeah. still, it's probably nothing like you'd want to use for a violin. I wouldn't think. No, no, it's yeah. not the same. <laughs> not the same stuff yeah. at all. Yeah. And so, if you took the varnish right off of a violin, does it sound bad? Well, it does. It, you know, varnish. We, you know, I've played a few violins that are completely white with no varnish on them, and mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, they, harsh. the sound is, yeah, the sound is not. I don't know if I would say it's harsh. It's kind of boxy sounding until you put the varnish on. Oh, I see. So uh, once again, from one instrument to another, it's really hard to ju- make a, a general yeah. statement about that kind of thing. But uh, now, is there any color put on the wood? Um, the color's not put on the wood. The color goes into the varnish. I see. And it's applied in layers of, uh, of varnish that's applied to the to the violin. And, and how many layers of varnish would you say? Four or five coats of varnish mm-hmm. is usually, usually adequate. Somebody, some people use more. 
Again, I'm really not a maker, so I'm really not up on what a lot of people are doing these days in terms of varnishing. But if someone brings something in, does it hurt the value for you to take off the old varnish and put on new varnish? Is that oh yeah? You You don't want to do that ever. Just like other other pieces of furniture. Same with furniture, exactly. And and I can't tell you how many times I've seen it done here. I mean, people bring instruments into me. That have been completely stripped by Grandpa, who yep. who was like to do furniture polishing and yep. took all the original varnish off, and the the, the value so of the instrument's gone. So you can conserve the varnish that's yeah. done, right? Even if it's two hundred years old. Yeah, that's right. right. In fact, I have an um, an antique um, instrument that I'm looking at right now, trying to figure out how to bring the varnish back on it. It it, it doesn't have a lot of original varnish left. Mm-hmm. But the instrument's relatively healthy, um, needs some restoration work. And the big trick with this instrument is going gonna, is gonna to be to bring that varnish back and mm-hmm. protect the wood. If we um, compare this to, say, American period furniture, 90% of American period furniture has been refinished. Oh, yeah. And 10% is an original finish. What's it like in violins? Uh, it's not that bad because of what happens is I don't see that many because uh, what usually happens with an instrument that's been revarnished is that it just kind of disappears from the trade because no one is interested yeah. in it. Yeah. Wow. Let's steer the novice collector out, out there away from buying violins with false labels. What should they look? What's the most con? Stradivarius and then the yeah. other names. So uh, Guarneri del Gesù, Amati, any any. Uh, any of the old uh, Italian, Italian makers, makers. you can almost be guaranteed the label is fictitious. Um, <laughs> and you really do need to bring it to someone like myself to examine it to tell you whether or not it's a real instrument. And I yeah. do verbal appraisals. I do insurance appraisals. How can um, you do it from an image sent via email? Um, I can usually, uh, I can often tell you whether or not you need to bring the instrument to me. Yeah. Um, I can often save you the trip. <laughs> yeah. You know, for, for me in the business, being in this business a long time, when I see something that I know it's an area of expertise that I have, I know instantly when I see that piece, when it comes like in the door, whether it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Is that the way you are? Do you have the feeling when it's a really nice piece? I can I can usually tell if it's been extremely altered or not, and that that gives me that gives me the feeling right away whether or not, whether or not I want to explore it further. Uh-huh. If it comes in and I can tell right away that it's really been messed around with, then it's usually a big disappointment. Yeah, some of it's reversible, some of it just really isn't. Mm-hmm. The worst thing in the world are, are amateur people who think they know what they're doing, and who think they know how to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Um, and especially in restoration work, cons- conservatism, they call it conservation for a reason. Now, wh- yes, right. What is the most common type of restoration that you do? Um, generally, the tops of islands become uh, a lot more worn than the backs. Um, so corners, replacing corners, mm-hmm. doubling the edges, re- soundpost patches in the top, um, repairing broken buttons when the necks are impacted and broken um that's around the other side of the back of the instrument so um, you actually do a layer over of a piece of wood that's worn it, go, it works in the opposite actually you work from the inside i see yeah so you do a, you, you a shirt dub- it up from the inside yeah you double you double mm-hmm. it from the inside it's it's very labor intensive you have wow. to take the whole instrument apart remove the blocks and yeah now we talked about the purfling before 
Does that ever have to be redone? Yeah, oftentimes you'll find missing pieces of purfling and you'll ju you, you try to match the materials as best you can. Sounds like very time consuming. That's time consuming. You sometimes have to make purfling. If you're lucky, you have some, you know, ebony maple mm -hmm. purfling that you'd made or saved from from an antique auction or something when yeah. you happen to buy a box of violin makers materials. Mm -hmm. um, are there, were there ever any violins that were smaller size made for children? Oh yeah. 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 And are, do they have any certain collectability? Oh sure. They do. There must be a market for them. I, um, it's usually not as good a market as the market for full size instruments, just because mm -hmm. professional players want a full size violin. What's the, favorite violin that you've worked on? Oh, my gosh, that's a tough one. Oh, um, I um, did a little bit of work on um, a Lorenzo Storioni violin a few years ago, and um, it was a beautiful fiddle. I really liked that violin a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, yeah, that's probably my favorite. Yeah, and I bet you enjoyed playing it once it was all yeah. done. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nice to be able to play a few notes on it. Yeah, it's such a beautiful instrument, the violin. Oh, it is. It's great. Yeah. It's endlessly fascinating. Right. Well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Yeah. So this is Martin Willis with Kevin McElroy of Frost Gully Violins, and we're signing off.